This episode of Trapital is brought to you by Downtown Music. Today's artists and rights holders have plenty of options to serve them, but not all of them can help at each stage in the creative process. There are few places that support both creators and businesses, from songwriting to royalty collection to payments. That's where Downtown comes in. The company is the world leader in music services with over 2 million clients who represent a catalog of over 38 million music assets. Downtown can help with music distribution, publishing, marketing, financing, and more. The company also works with clients across the world with 145 countries represented across a wide range of genres and languages. From emerging songwriters to iconic performers, Downtown's mission is to drive equity across the entire industry. Want to learn more about how Downtown can help you and your business? Visit Downtown today at downtownmusic.com. That's D-O-W-N-T-O-W-N-M-U-S-I-C.com. It wasn't just his videos. It was all of the people replicating the dance and putting up their own versions. And then you had all the spinoffs as well, whether it was Crank That Batman, Crank That Spider-Man, and people posting those up, that then getting its own popularity. Hey, welcome to Trapital. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. This is your place to gain insights on the business that shapes music, media, and culture. We dive deep into the companies and moguls who start the trends that shape the rest of the business world. In music, there's no other platform like YouTube. YouTube has done more to lower the barrier entries to music than any other company. Think of the names that have come from YouTube. Soulja Boy, Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, Tori Kelly, NBA Youngboy. The names of artists who have broken out on this platform is long. But this platform has also been the point of frustration for several years of its existence since it launched in 2005. Sometimes it's easy to forget that the big three major record labels, Universal, Sony, and Warner, each had ownership stakes in YouTube before it was acquired by Google and collectively netted out a reported $50 million. But that $50 million is just a drop in the bucket of the amount of revenue that YouTube has made thanks to music and the gap, the value gap specifically, that the major record labels and the rights holders still think that they deserve their fair share of. So in this episode, we break it all down. We talk about YouTube's near 20 years of history, talk about the opportunities it's had and the impact it's had in the industry artists and how they've used it, the relationship over the years, and how YouTube has worked to continue to improve that relationship, where it sits today, and more. I'm joined by friend of the pod, Tati Sirisano, so we break it all down. So let's take a trip back to the mid-2000s when YouTube was a nascent platform and hitting the industry at the perfect time. All right, today we have a huge episode in store for us. Tati, I feel like we've been circling this one for a while because we're going to break down YouTube. How you feeling? I'm feeling good. We got lots to discuss, much to unpack. <laughs> In some ways, we've been building towards this one. A year ago, we talked about Spotify versus YouTube. We talked about the short form video wars. And now we're here. I mean, I guess it just goes to show um, how influential and um, how, how big a part of the music industry YouTube is that we've already done so many episodes that kind of touch on this. So uh, excited to dig in. A few months ago, maybe it's even a few weeks ago, I posed a question online and I asked people which company has been the most influential in the music industry in the 21st century. I gave them the options of Apple, YouTube, or Spotify. 
And the results were almost a dead heat. And this was on LinkedIn. This was on Twitter. This was over thousands of people sharing their results. And it's still something I think about because I go back and read the responses. And of course, people are going to be quite dogmatic about how they feel. But I think each of them has a pretty strong case to make. YouTube is right in that discussion, though, for sure. I agree. I don't know how I would answer that. Honestly, that question stresses me out. <laughs> It's hard to pick one. I need to read those responses. Yeah, we don't have to pick one now. I'll send you the responses <laughs> at, a, at a later point. But when I pose the question, what sticks out about YouTube is the origin. And this is probably the best place to start with this. So this is a service that launches in 2005. But before that, the whole concept of on-demand music and music videos were a pretty rare place because... I remember, as we talked about in our episodes about Pandora and others, I remember using several of those peer-to-peer file sharing services to download music videos at a time when there were certain music videos I wanted to watch. Maybe you would see one of them uploaded to sites like Ebombs World or stuff like that, but you would have to download them and it would take many times longer to download those than it would ever take to download a song. So that just shows you where internet was at the time. But I also think that when this service came, it was timely because you had some of this was happening from piracy, but still you needed to have a really strong broadband connection to make that happen. And at this point, MTV and where a lot of people were consuming music videos was already in its full on shift over a decade from realizing that we just can't be showing music videos nonstop. People are going to change the channel if they see a video that they don't want. That's why they went into reality TV in the first place. So YouTube coming at this perfect nexus of broadband technologies getting better and better, digital videos getting better and better, and they've just been able to continue to ride that wave for almost two decades now. And similar to what we talked about with Napster and suddenly being able to, you know, find all this music that and download it that you couldn't before. I feel like it's kind of hard to overstate how big a deal it was to suddenly have this video platform that you could upload and share videos of your own with the world. And then this service launches December 2005. And after a few months, so early 2006, we start seeing the first few videos come up on the platform, the first few music videos, at least coming up on the platform. And of course, there was a wide range of things. Some of these were DIY, where people were experimenting with the platform themselves. You had groups like um, the Lonely Island who were making their own skits and posting their videos up there. They were one of the early groups there. But you also had young teens doing their thing as well. This is where Soulja Boy is so key because everyone remembers Crank That blowing up. That was August 2007. But there was a year and a half of experimentation for him doing this. So you have this 15-year-old kid in Mississippi has the internet connection, has the creativity, he's posting his videos. And this is really the origin of someone posting their videos, seeing the impact there, seeing the feedback. And in a lot of ways, this worked better for him than other platforms at the time, because this was a time when MySpace music was quite popular, SongClick and other platforms. So th this was a nascent age of people using DIY music tools and things like that. But that combination of him being able to tap in, use what's there, using platforms like Fruity Loops to be able to make his beats and then posting it. This was one of those cool situations of seeing real time, someone young testing out and getting feedback and ultimately using that to launch a hit. 
And not only that, but that uh, the song itself kind of involved the user by definition because it had this dance attached to it. Um, so I think you saw a lot of, you know, copycats or like dance videos or things that came up in response to it. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such like a microcosm for everything that we see now with audience involvement in UGC and artists being able to just release directly to their audience. Um, no middleman needed. I know this was a while ago, but do you remember when that came out and specifically knowing that, oh, this came from YouTube. This wasn't a record label thing. This was a grassroots thing. I do remember that. Um, and he, he gave like a lot of interviews about this at the time saying like, I'm showing people how to, you know, become famous from your bedroom and all these things that um, kind of sort of echo even today with TikTok and all these other platforms. I, and I do remember it just being ubiquitous at middle school dances everywhere. <laughs> he named his album SoldierBoyTellEm.com. Everything, right, exactly. everything was engineered. It's almost in the same exact way that Lil Nas X did 15 years later with Old Town Road, he was doing the same thing here where every bit of this was clearly someone that spent a lot of time on the internet figuring out what works and what doesn't and making it click. So I'm glad you mentioned the user-generated uh, content part, the UGC, because it wasn't just his videos. It was all of the people replicating the dance and putting up their own versions. And then you had all the spinoffs as well, whether it was Crank That Batman, Crank That Spider-Man, and people posting those up, that then getting its own popularity and that then growing demand back to the original video itself. I forgot about all those extra versions, the Superman, the Spider-Man. <laughs> It really was a phenomenon. He did end up working with distribution where he did work with Mr. Kyle Park um, down in Atlanta. And then he eventually moved to Atlanta himself. And then by the time his next album came, he did have more direct partnerships with the industry. But what he did, especially at that age, was so influential. The artists like Lil B saw what he did and then started doing similar things on social media. And artists like Lil Yachty, who didn't blow up until almost a decade after this, references this. Someone like J-Rock as well, an artist that a lot of people probably wouldn't think would be influenced by Soulja Boy, referenced him as well. Because there was this moment in early 2019 Soldier Boy was on this interview stretch that he had interviews with Everyday Struggle, that complex show that was popular at the time. He was on The Breakfast Club and he felt like he wasn't getting his fair due. And Soldier Boy can have his moments where he'll say, oh, yeah, well, I invented that. He can embellish a lot of things. But he did speak a lot to his influence and just how many people copied his style. Even Drake in some of the songs, I think Drake has that song, Miss Me, from his Thank Me Later album. And there's an interpolation of that that literally comes direct from one of those Soldier Boy experimentation songs in the early 2000s. So it was really cool to see how, yeah, a young teen was able to influence a generation. The Lil Nas X comparison that you just made is really interesting because I feel like both of them were successful on these platforms because they they treated they they approached them as a creator outside of even music. Like Lil Nas X was like a meme creator for years before launching his music career. Like really intimately understood the ins and outs of the platform as more than just a musician. Um, and it seems like Soldier Boy did the same, and also other artists who are successful on YouTube, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And this kicks off a lot for YouTube itself because at this point. 
the acquisition had already happened. So the end of 2006, Google ends up buying YouTube. YouTube becomes the second largest search engine in the world and is able to do the same through video. But that strength is also what riles up some of the concern that we start to see from the major record labels. Because after Soldier Boy blows up, you start seeing more and more videos that are being put up on the platform. And I think this is probably a good place to talk about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act from 1998 and its influence on everything that shapes YouTube and its relationship with music. With the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, um, which was enacted in 1998. Um, so before the internet really, <laughs> really existed in the way it does today, before social media, um, basically stipulates that if you are a content hosting platform like YouTube, um, and somebody, a user uploads uh, copyrighted material, just because you host it on your website um, doesn't necessarily make you liable. The user is still liable. Um, you as a platform are shielded from, you know, from fault, as long as you show that you have a robust system for, you know, doing copyright takedowns. Um, so taking down that content after the rights holder has uh, filed a complaint. But the key there is that the burden is on the rights holder. Um, to make those complaints in the first place. And um, this it's often referred to as like the safe harbor law. Um, and I think that's how it's referred to in the EU and you know in other in other territories. But this is kind of what allowed YouTube um, and, and other content hosting platforms that come after it to host uh, copyrighted music. Um, without needing licenses from the labels first. And it also means that YouTube sort of has the upper hand in negotiations because whether or not labels and publishers want the music to be on those platforms, it will be there. Um, it's, it's a question of whether, whether they're, you know, willing to negotiate, um, or not. Right. It ended up becoming a game of whack-a-mole because if one video gets taken down, sure, you may do the work to put that get that one video taken down, you being the rights holder, but there's going to be another one that comes up and another one comes up and it's quite challenging. So that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is the timing. You mentioned as well, 1998, that's before the internet was what it became by the time it's in the late 2000s, very different from what it became in 2016 when con conversations just continued to accelerate there. So there's so many dated things there. And in a lot of ways, this set up a pretty tenuous relationship between the rights holders and YouTube specifically, because YouTube in many ways was and historically had been a bigger challenge for the record labels than Spotify was, because there's two aspects of what people are negotiating about, right? There's how the pie should be split which is one of the broader issues that the record labels has had with Spotify over the years. But then YouTube, there's this whole other layer in terms of how that pie is being categorized, what counts as what should even be counted in that pie and what isn't, especially when it comes to things like advertising revenue, where that's been one of the challenges for the music industry, because for years, even more recently, but it's continued, they've wanted to try to shift as much of that revenue away from the ad dollars and more towards the subscriptions where they feel like there's a set amount that they can get from each user. But with ad, but from ad supported revenue, especially from YouTube, it becomes quite challenging. And there's certain things like ad blockers and things like that, that can just compound the issue further. And one of the big tugs, tug of wars was the aspect of paying 
royalties on the music that's streamed versus just having a share of the ad revenue. And when it comes to the ad revenue, the like added even more bit of nuance there is how YouTube is paying out um, a percentage of ad revenue that fluctuates depending on how well, you know, their ad business does on any given quarter. Whereas for something like, um, like the Spotify's of the world, there are these guaranteed minimum per stream rates that labels are, are and publishers are getting. Um, and it's not the case with YouTube. So that's another thing that's been um, highly ferociously debated. <laughs> and it led to a few tense moments where in 2008, Warner took all of its music off of YouTube. And when I say took all of its music off, I say that in quotes, because as we mentioned, some stuff is still getting uploaded as as they speak, but that was one of the big challenges. But then a year later, they end up putting the music back on. Granted, there were other things in the works. We'll talk about Vivo in a minute, which is one of the big things that ended up launching in 2000 or in the late 2000s there. But that was a huge issue. But Warner's position essentially they wanted to protect what's theirs, but they often felt that they couldn't avoid the promotional and the exposure benefit. That's one. And two, the music was already there. So like you said, it just creates a very different negotiating place. So they ended up putting the music back on. And in many ways, despite the negotiations, despite the tense and strong opinions that have stated, the music has stayed on there. Granted, the relationship has improved over the years, and we'll talk about that. But the music has stayed on there despite any of the back and forth. That Warner removing the music and then putting it back is a pretty telling moment. Um, and I think Vivo is as well, the way that it was created and eventually just ended up being a syndication service for YouTube. So it was created as a JV with the major labels to create an official source for music videos, right? But it was a separate platform from YouTube. And that's where in a lot of those music videos, you'll see, I think there's some date, I think it's like August 25th, 2009, or somewhere around there, where all of those videos that were on Vivo essentially went to YouTube. So exactly, this was supposed to be a standalone service, supposed to have its own hub, but they also realized that they couldn't fight with where the demand was and just ended up putting the content over there. In some ways, it reminds me of what we're seeing happening in Hollywood right now with video streaming services, where a lot of the shows that were native to Max are now being sold to Netflix and being put there because you see the impact of when a show is on Netflix, like Suits or something like that, it has this, the closest thing you can have to monoculture in a way that it just doesn't on the other services. So that transition reminds me a lot of something that we're now seeing where Netflix, a company that has been the leader, is kind of solidifying itself whenever your competitor feels like they can't beat them, join them. Let me put my stuff on your platform. Totally. So both of those instances with Warner and with Vivo were sort of a reflection of the music industry realizing that it needed YouTube. <laughs> so it needed to figure out how they were going to work together. Right. And then... Things continued there in the early 2010s, I would say, just in terms of the relationships. But I think this is probably a good point to talk about what those trade-offs look like, because the labels were, of course, quite frustrated about the financial aspects of it. But if you look more broadly at music creation, dating back to the Soldier Boy example we discussed and others, there's a huge promotional aspect, which does benefit new artists, but also benefited a lot of these major label artists, too, who 
didn't want to be off of this platform that had huge exposure. And there was also great feedback loops as well. This was an opportunity to get the feedback in real time. Social Boy showed that he was able to do this and several other artists have been able to follow suit. So I actually want to read this quote from um, Mark Mulligan, who you work with at Media Research. This is back in 2015. He said, um, you walk into a record label, the people on the marketing side said, quote, we can't sell music without YouTube. And the people on the commercial affairs side say, quote, we can't sell music because of YouTube. And both of those are true. That was the interview that he gave with CNET. And it's exactly right. That's exactly what the dynamic was. And we talked about this a bit in our episode on um, music videos more broadly, but video also did and continues to play a really important role in fandom. That's, you know, that's often how a listener makes a transition to becoming a fan is watching a music video seeing the artist's style, their personality, understanding more about who they are. Um, we find in our consumer surveys at Midia that videos are the number one way that people engage with the artists they like beyond their music, um, whether that's music videos, performance videos, vlogs, lyric videos, all these other things. Because I feel like in some ways that ties back to the way things were with MTV, right? What was that top thing that you saw that just captured the attention there in a way that even though audio requires less senses, it's something that does take deeper adoption because there is a set it and forget it type of nature to a lot of audio. And that requires more intent than listening to something. Right. And sure, there's definitely a, a good chunk of people who are, are using YouTube for music videos today are putting on the video in the background and, it, and they're more so just kind of using it as their free streaming service. Um, but we do find when we test, um, we ask in our consumer surveys, like kind of with each of these platforms, are you mainly focusing on it when you're using it? Is it in the background? Uh, you know, how, how focused is your attention? And we do find that Spotify and YouTube are mirror opposites. When we ask about Spotify, it's mostly in the background. When we ask about YouTube, they're much more likely to say, I'm mainly focusing on this. I'm not doing anything else. So it's a way to actually engage with your listeners. Um, that a lot of artists feel they need. Which taps more into that influence piece that we're talking about, right? Like the influence may look different based on who the stakeholder is, but in that artist-fan relationship, it's it's so strong. And I also want to say too, just going back to some of the debates between the rights holders and the platform, the record labels weren't necessarily alone in the fight against YouTube over copyrighted material. Viacom had had several large and public debates about their content, whether it was the various shows that they own and the channels, whether it's things on CBS or MTV, VH1, and many of the video channels that they have, they had issues about it as well. And ultimately, they ended up caving in to some extent as well. Not even to some extent, they ended up working um, it out. And I know that they also ended up signing deals with YouTube, but it did become one of these things where you can't necessarily beat the platform, you join them. So I noticed that as well, where audio, of course, is having its moment, specifically with music. Video did as well. Video maybe had slightly different challenges where, sure, um, especially for a company like Viacom, I think it's much easier to track if someone is uploading an entire movie to uh, service and the user generated content and the derivative options aren't quite as vast and broad as they are in music, but it still is a challenge. So this just goes to show how powerful this platform 
yeah, that went, these debates went far beyond just music. Another thing too, that I was thinking about with this one, we talked a little bit about this in past episodes you and I've done, but the long tail and the ability to monetize niche in this long tail specifically as it relates to artists, because this is something that I think a lot of companies try to do and don't necessarily do effectively where a company like YouTube has the connections and has the pull where all of the big companies under a brand like Viacom or under a brand like Disney need to use this service. And many of them have built channels with millions and millions of subscribers because of that. But they also have the ability to monetize niche in that way, where I think so many other platforms, it's either one or the other. And YouTube has really been able to both monetize the blockbusters and the long tails. Yeah, because they, they actually have fandom monetization features. Um, they have, you know, premium channel memberships. They have super chat where you can pay to, you know, put your comment to the top of the list. Um, but I, I do think the sort of caveat there is that music is in many ways not as well suited to the YouTube monetization model as vlogging or gamer videos or, you know, product reviewers and like all these other types of content creators that there are on there. Um, because you're not, you know, you're not releasing a steady stream of videos. I feel like some of the more successful channels on YouTube that are music related are rosters, not individual artists. Um, I think it's hard to keep up with the demands of a YouTube audience as an artist. And also another point I, I wanted to bring up at some point is that the length of music videos puts music at a disadvantage in YouTube's monetization model because you're not able to take advantage of things like mid-roll ads, which are some of the most, I, my understanding is some of, the, some of the most profitable like ads that are in there because your videos are only three minutes. Whereas if you're a gamer and you're posting a 20 minute segment, you might have two ads that come, you know, in, in, in those chapter markers of your video. So I think overall, even though there are many artists and especially independent artists who have built careers on YouTube, it's a very different model of your business as an artist. And it doesn't necessarily gel with music. That's a great point because so much of the platform is built for the YouTuber that can crank out four or five videos a week to be like, hey, come hang out with me for the next 17 minutes and specifically 17 minutes because that's what the algorithm wants while I come do this thing. We'll upload the video tomorrow. And good art takes time. And there's a lot of artists that have tried to adapt their music in terms of the frequency that they release stuff to try to play into this. And we'll get to some of that soon. But yeah, that's one advantage that music has. And I haven't heard many people talk about it in that way. So I'm glad, I'm glad you brought it up. One of the other use cases of music in the platform too is people doing cover versions of songs. And this is of course how an artist like Justin Bieber is able to blow up as a teenager as well. So here we have another teenager in the was either early 2010s, maybe even late 2000s, but he starts doing cover versions. He gets discovered and that's how his career takes off. And it sort of, again, echoes now, you know, where A&Rs are mining TikTok for new artists and things like that. Like YouTube was kind of the original spot for it where Justin Bieber was, I think, just one of many artists that got discovered doing covers on the platform. Right. Tori Kelly was another one. I know that she mm -hmm. had a number and I she became- Maybe quite too. famous. I think he did as well. Yeah. 
it was it was huge. And in many ways, it was a rite of passage. If you're going to try stuff out, yeah, see how it tracks. Let the algorithm take its course and see what happens. So especially when you're in that 99% bucket of artists, because when you're the 99%, you want the promotion. You want to be able to get the validation to see if you can make it as a 1%. It's not that simplistic. I don't think you need to be in the 1% to be successful, just to be clear. But for the sake of this part of the discussion, I do think that that serves the validation. And in many ways, it ends up being the 1% and the people who represent the 1% that do have the issues. Granted, the 1% do make up a majority of the revenue, but that's one of those things where, yeah, in the early days, it's so important. And you're not going to get that alone just releasing on Spotify for the reasons that you mentioned earlier. You want to be able to reach the fans. That's where the discovery is. And they want to be able to see you as well. Unless you're the weekend, where I guess you can get away with not being seen in the early parts of your career. Right. He's another one that got started with YouTube releases. YouTube releases, ironically hiding his face, yeah. but still YouTube releases. Still, that was the, the first place that I think he started releasing music, right? So that's another one. It was really a, a, a special moment there. As things continued on for the platform, by the mid-2010s, this is the point where streaming is really starting to take off. Streaming is starting to surpass digital downloads in terms of the amount of revenue that it makes up for the industry. And now we're seeing more and more concerns because, of course, there's ongoing debates with all of the streaming services. But one of the bigger issues with YouTube specifically is around the payouts. And it's going back to that breakdown of the ad streaming revenue. So YouTube was responsible for half of the music that people listen to. However, ad supported streaming was only responsible for 16% of the overall revenue. So 84% of the streaming revenue came from subscriptions. So here you have this service that's responsible for half of the listening, but a portion of that 16% of the revenue that's there. So as that starts to grow, people have more and more issues with it. And there was this stat in 2016 about how the music industry generated more revenue from vinyl sales that year than it did from YouTube. And this was before vinyl became the phenomenon that it is today. This was back when vinyl was just primarily seen as the old platform that people haven't used dominant way for decades now. And that's something that sticks out because I think this is a turning point where YouTube started to say, okay, we need to change some things about our relationship. But I feel like anytime that you have some stat where people can point to something that is seen as much smaller than you are and say, hey, here, this is generating more revenue than you are, it does have people start to pause and think about things in a different way. Yeah. So this is where the music industry really starts seeding this argument of the, what, what, the, what we term the value gap for how popular YouTube is as a place for music consumption, the music industry believes it's not contributing enough revenue back to back to music rights holders, and that it's kind of sucking the oxygen out of the subscription streaming market because people are just using YouTube as essentially free streaming. And there's lots of examples of these types of stats and you know, headlines that the music industry is kind of using around this time to try and plead its case um, I saw the, one of the things I came across in my research was the, uh, 2017 IFPI annual report, which is, of course, one of the biggest releases every year, um, was essentially used to target YouTube. It was called fixing the value gap. It, it spoke about YouTube as an example 
of this value gap, but it was very clearly, you know, between the lines, just targeting YouTube. Um, So there was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of this played out in the press around that time. The value gap became such a polarizing piece because IFPI and the labels and folks like Irving Azoff were very much in favor of using the language to call it exactly what you said. Yes, there's a huge gap there. The Google argument that they were pushing at the time was that, hey, we've now paid over $3 billion to this industry, one. And two, you can't compare us to Spotify or other DSPs because it's apples to oranges. That's essentially what they were saying. And part of the opportunity that YouTube had at the time was they weren't necessarily disclosing how much of the tens of millions of revenue that they were getting per year came directly from music-related advertising versus non-music-related advertising revenue or subscriptions or things like that. That wasn't clearly delineated because if that was spelled out, then that would have been an even bigger thing for the record labels to say, hey, look, we're helping you make $7 billion of the $14 billion you're making a year, hypothetically, or maybe even more, but we're only getting $700,000 or whatever the figure was, or $700 million, rather, whatever the figure was. So those types of things, in many ways, did work to YouTube's advantage. And even some of that still today, and I know we'll get to that when we share some of the stats, but the fact that the success for the platform could be baked into both how it was doing from the music side versus the non-music side helped part of the negotiations as well, at least from the Google side of things. Because that's the, the big question is how reliant is YouTube on music content? And like you said, they're, they're of course not going to disclose the percentage of ad revenue or the percentage of views or whatever it is that goes to music. Um, because it would make that what the music industry sees as a value gap just easier to point a finger at. Right. Um, but at the same time, they are every year showing the dollar amount that they pay to the music industry, which is a lot of money. But the, you know, the question is, is it enough? But we can't, it's hard to answer that question when you don't have the full picture of the data. And this number was something that was relatively newer and something that had been pushed at least more recently, but ever since Lior Cohen um, took over the role. And we'll get, to, we'll get to him in a little bit, but I think that that was always part of the rub there. So you had this service that now is in the position where they want to put things forward, but they just weren't necessarily able to navigate that piece of it there. And yeah, it did become quite challenging. And I do think that 2015, 2016 was a bit of a tension point there because streaming is starting to take off. Things are starting to grow. And even if you have a bit of the debate and you may feel validated in your debate, there is a loss of the court of public opinion and how that works in your favor. And we talked about this in the Pandora episode to some extent, right? And we started to see some of these organizations partner with the well-respected people in the music industry to try to smooth ties over, not just from a PR perspective, they wanted to bring in talented, sharp leaders that have done their effective things. But this is a time when Apple acquires Beats by Dre, 2014, Jimmy Iovine becomes one of the top executives at Apple Music. Spotify brings on Troy Carter as an executive there. So then YouTube then brings in Lior Cohen, who had ran Warner Music Group, ran Def Jam, ran 300, and then now is in this this position. One thing I quickly want to mention before we get into Lior about the 
the data on like how reliant YouTube is on music. One metric that is very clearly publicly available is just the billion views club, right? The videos on YouTube that have a billion plus views and the vast majority of them are music. So that is one stat that I've seen people sort of cling to in these debates. But there is the nuance there of what I was saying earlier, the difference between proportion of views versus versus time spent. Because music is at a disadvantage because the videos are so much shorter than most of the competitive content that's on YouTube. So there might be a higher proportion of views that go to music, but it's a lower proportion of time spent. So just a, yeah, one thing I wanted to mention there before, before Lior. And it made me think the data must be out there, at least on the first part of that, right? Because I think you brought up a good point. The music views lightly outpace the non-music views. And there's plenty of stats there that cover the music views, which makes me think there's plenty of stats that cover the non-music views. I'd be curious to see the breakdown there. But yeah, once you add in duration, that does become interesting. So I'm going to dig into this after because now I'm I'm really interested to see. Because time spent is probably a bigger indicator for, for the ad business than views, right? I think it's, I think it's mostly that's, that's how they insert the ads is the time spent, not the views. So, uh, I would think that puts music at a disadvantage, but, um, yeah, a lot to, to look into and think about here. <laughs> and it also makes me think about music continuing to be a top of funnel type of offering for these platforms because at least something that can be inferred from this is that you come to YouTube to see the debut of the Olivia Rodrigo driver's license music video. You stay on the platform to watch the making of Olivia Rodrigo interview on Variety or whatever. I don't even know if she's done a Variety interview. I'm just using a hypothetical example, but you stay for that. You watch that half an hour. And then that's the thing that YouTube makes even more money on because like you said, you can add in ads at different points in a way where you're not going to interrupt a music video that's three minutes and 25 seconds. And on that note, I think now is probably a good time to talk a little bit more about Lior here because as you mentioned, a seasoned music executive has managed, sold record labels, launched them, ran one of the majors as well. So you have someone like that coming in to run this platform He's now been in this position for seven years, and there has been a clear, dedicated focus and goal to improve things and right the ship. And when he took the job, he was quite transparent about some of the challenges there. There were definitely certain skeptics that were writing blog posts and articles at the time that just questioned how much opportunity there were that was there to improve, not necessarily because of Lee or himself, but because they questioned YouTube in just the 10 plus year decade long relationship that the industry had had. But there are certain things that they've tried to push forward where one thing was, as you mentioned earlier, being more public about how much revenue this organization is contributing to the music industry. I believe the most recent number was either $6 billion or $7 billion in 2022. And then that's just $1 billion less than Spotify which Spotify is at $7 billion. And they made it clear their goal is to be the number one revenue generating source for the music industry, which in some ways, maybe as some would say when it gets there, yeah, as it should be, because this is where more music listening happens by far than any other service in the world. So there is a a strong case to be made there, but you've, you've seen other things too, just with some of the other hires, right? You had Tumabasa that 
had worked in several different roles in this industry from MTV to Revolt. Um, he's come on the podcast as well. So I definitely recommend anyone check out the episode that him and I did together. But this is someone that was respected as well for the work that he did at Spotify and Rap Caviar. And again, someone that felt like they were a uh, well-respected person in the industry being one of us seen as the person that's now sitting at the table. He then moves to YouTube to try to do a lot of that. And back in 2019, YouTube or Google overall reported that there were 15 million paid users on that were using Google Play Music and YouTube Music as a paid subscription service. Google Play Music, of course, has now been sunset. In 2020, that number was reported to be 30 million, but they kind of changed the breakdown a bit because then they were combining YouTube premium subscriptions in YouTube music, YouTube premium subscription is everything on the YouTube platform, including music that is all ad free. In 2021, that number went to 50 million. And then in 2022, that number went to 80 million. We haven't seen the numbers yet for 2023. Maybe they'll show them eventually, but this is part of their focus to just continue to have that piece of the pie grow. Again, though, we don't necessarily have the split between YouTube premium versus YouTube music in those subscriptions, which kind of tie back to that point that we were talking about earlier. But there clearly is focus, not even just for YouTube music, but for YouTube overall to increase the amount of people that are paying for its mm -hmm. service. And there are a lot of blind spots or difficulties in, in kind of squaring these metrics that YouTube reports, because the, also with the, um, the revenue it pays out to the music industry, they use this strange time frame of like June to July. So they'll say, Oh, from June 2021 to July 2022, it was six billion. Whereas, you know, with Spotify, when they do their loud and clear, it's on the calendar year. So it's kind of hard to make that direct comparison when we're trying to see, okay, how close is YouTube to overtaking Spotify as is their goal. The other thing that was tied into just with the breakdowns that are here. So if you look at that 80 million number, and let's just assume those are the people that are paying for everything music related. We know it's probably a little bit less than that, but we just can't break that down. Of that amount, though, there's a predicted or estimated 2.7 billion active users on this platform. So 80 million of 2.7 billion, that's just under 3% if you're looking at a paid conversion perspective of the amount of people that are using this platform compared to Spotify. Spotify, meanwhile, is a service that now from its Q3 earnings has 226 million paid users, 574 free accounts, which puts its conversion just under 40% at 39% paid. So it's such a different, two completely different services in a lot of ways in terms of how it's monetized, where I know that a lot of the talking points from YouTube has talked about how this is a twin engine of subscription revenue and advertising supported revenue. But I have to imagine that the twin engine is not a 50-50 engine with both of those. Is it really in YouTube's best interest for the premium offering to be successful? Because that would mean that more of their audience is behind the paywall. They're giving more of that revenue out to music rights holders. And they're an ad business. They need to sell access to audiences. So I'm just wondering like how uh, how that all balances out because it seems to me like if if premium is a huge success it actually could be detrimental to to YouTube's ad business which is their main and Google's which is their main you know model. 
I think there's something there because I was listening to a podcast recently. I think they were talking about this on The Town. It was Lucas Shaw and Matt Belny. They were talking about how Netflix specifically, as you know, they had launched their ad tier, but their ad tier is actually more lucrative for the overall business because as we know, this is a fantastic business that fantastic just I mean that specifically in like the revenue and expected profit and things like that that works quite well largely because it has the huge scale to be able to monetize these ads effectively and if you then lose that because people are paying $12 a month at least the way it is now for YouTube premium what does that look like i guess there could be some question of are the people that are paying for this service people that would have used a YouTube ad blocker in general? So are you now just capturing that? Who knows? I don't know enough about the profile mix of what the YouTube premium subscriber looks like, but I do think you bring up a good point. Yeah, it's complicated because again, this is Spotify to YouTube is apples to oranges, but on Spotify, the ad supported tier is mainly a funnel to subscriptions. You don't want people to like the ad supported tier. You want them to be annoyed by it so that they sign up for the subscription. Whereas on YouTube, ad supported is the business. It's not the funnel. So it's right. just it's fundamentally different. The ad supported experience on YouTube is so much better than the ad supported experience on one of these DSPs. And the fact that it is so much better on YouTube is the ultimate feature, not a bug if we're talking about it. It's designed to be that way. I'm sure that the record labels would prefer if there were more things that incentivize you to use the paid version of the service. But again, YouTube can fall on the side of saying, well, we don't necessarily have you as the sole stakeholder the way that a DSP might. There are plenty of other people that are using the service for other things. So, But <laughs> going back to Lior, I think that he did do a good job of repairing relationships with the music industry. He came, he came in at a really crucial time because as we were talking about, value gap debate had reached a fever pitch. It was getting really contentious. There was a point where YouTube might have just said, all right, we're just going to leave music behind um, and focus on this other content. But Lear Cohen came in, he introduced, you know, marketing programs, um, new ways for YouTube to help break artists. They have, you know, now they have premieres. They had the Artist on the Rise program for many years. Foundry, this interesting like artist sort of incubator program that I think was launched before he joined, but that was really built out under Lear Cohen. And there's been some big, pretty big artists that have come through that, like Dua Lipa, uh, Rosalia, Claro. So I, I think we're definitely on better footing now than we were before him. <laughs> That's for sure. And I also think it's fascinating as well, just because I think that Warner and YouTube from a leadership perspective flipped things to where they are now, where back in 2016, it was Robert Kinsel, YouTube's chief business officer at the time, who was speaking often about some of the improvements and things that YouTube was doing. And as we talked about earlier, it was um, Lear Cohen, who was the chief at Warner Music. Now, a lot of those roles have flipped where it's Lior, who's now the global head of music for YouTube, and it's Robert Kinsel, who's now the CEO of Warner Music. Yeah, that relationship is really interesting. So where do you think YouTube is on you know, its ambitious goal to overtake Spotify as the number one source of industry revenue by 2025? Like, What do we think about how that will all pan out? Because we're getting there. It's almost 2024. <laughs> 
I think it'll happen. I don't know if it'll happen specifically at 2025. Mm -hmm. Again, I think even you brought up the reporting piece about it being in this mid-year cycle versus the half year. I'm not sure exactly when it will happen, but I do think it will happen. Just the inevitability of things as they continue to grow and where a lot of the additional dollars come from. Unless Spotify in developed markets increases its price to by 20% or even 25%, which I would be a bit surprised to expect it to do between now and 2025, I think we'll likely see YouTube just continue to grow because the ad revenue and everything there can continue to grow in a way that Spotify's willingness to raise its price may not. I agree. I think um, what also might give YouTube an edge is the UGC component, which is something that Spotify doesn't have and I don't think ever will. Um, I don't think they want to give that much power to the user. I don't think they want to invest in content moderation, all of these things that you have to do if you have user-generated content. But it's becoming a bigger part of the revenue that YouTube pays out to rights holders. Um, at one point, they've said uh, 30% of, the re- of that revenue, so that would be $2 billion, um, is, is that YouTube pays to music rights holders comes from UGC. They've also in, in another release or, or somewhere, I don't know, somewhere on their website have said that it's 50%. Um, so if that continues growing the way it is, I mean, UGC is just continuing to explode. I do wonder if that will be what really lifts YouTube up over Spotify is just that, um, that UGC element. No one else has, has actually, no platform of scale has combined music listening and UGC in that way. TikTok music could maybe do it. But it's not it's not launched yet. So um, I think that is a big uh, potential edge. And I think with that, it's probably a good opportunity to talk about the impact of Content ID, which enables the monetization for this. And then as it relates to some of the new AI developments that we may have. But let's start with the Content ID first. So this is now a multi-billion dollar business, but this is YouTube's digital fingerprint system to identify any copyrighted material. So it goes in, if you're uploading a video that has a song or even a snippet of the song, the technology is there that can detect that. And then it goes through one of three options. It either blocks the video, it monetizes the video by running ads on it, and the percentages can change, but I've seen as high as 80% of that goes to the underlying asset owner. And then it tracks where it may not monetize, but at least tracks the stats for the video that's there. And this is now, as you mentioned, a multi-billion dollar business. And this is something that's been used as a talking point for the opportunity that exists in AI, which is now one of the more recent developments and opportunities that they've discussed, which is another reason why I think that they can additionally close that gap. They're partnering with artists like John Legend and Papoose, Sia, Demi Lovato, and others. So they're working with um, Google's DeepMind technology called Lyria. And with that, they're then using that to allow their voice to be used for original short tracks. And that in connection mixed with everything else that we're talking about is a huge opportunity because if that catches on, other artists are going to follow suit. So there's a big opportunity here. You've heard me rant a million times on this pod about how we really see the the future of UGC as users being able to not only use music in their content, but also remix it, re- make their own music, use an artist's vocal, all of these sorts of things. 
Um, and YouTube is really the first platform of scale to do it um, with DreamTrack. I think it's, I think this is a pretty huge announcement. Um, and they're, they're doing it with, uh, in, a, in a smart way, I think, by starting with this small group of artists um, who, who are participating in this experiment rather than try and go and, you know, license a lot of music to be used in this way. They're just going in these one-off partnerships and sort of seeing how it goes. Um, but I think this all really fuels YouTube's potential as this sort of consumer creation powerhouse um, and like sort of next gen music company in that way, because this is a, in a lot of ways what, what I've talked about um, bite dance heading towards where you have this ecosystem of um, fans engaging with music, creating on top of the, their favorite songs. Um, and then you also have a consumption app in the same place um, and YouTube with YouTube shorts and with dream track, I think it really, really has a lot of potential um, also because I mean, Google or Alphabet is obviously one of the major companies that's vying to dominate the AI space, um, which is part of the reason why Lior and YouTube Music are moving really, really fast with AI and music. So I think this is another thing that gives them an edge in terms of where the future is going. And I'm very fascinated to watch how it all plays out. This is something we've been talking about on the pod for a while in terms of what does that Instagram-like opportunity for music exist? I think there's a few platforms that have had similar things to it, but I watched some of those demo videos and yeah, I can type in a prompt the same way that I can type in a prompt to mid-journey and then get T-Pain's voice sounding like this and then overlay that. That's that next level stuff. And it brings you back to hearing the stories of Soulja Boy almost 20 years ago doing that. Who is that teenager that's going to use all this stuff now and create something amazing? Who's the professional artist several years in their career is going to use this stuff now and make something amazing? It sees YouTube actually getting into music creation in a way that other consumption platforms haven't. You know, like TikTok or ByteDance has, um, I believe they have one or two apps that deal with music making like ripple is one of them and they've posted you know job listings to hire people involved with this and they, they clearly have their sights set on music creation but they haven't they haven't really gotten into that yet and i think youtube is probably the first major platform for consumption that has really gotten into the music creation side and had it geared towards consumers and you brought up this point in our prep too that this is something that a more traditional dsp just wouldn't do because they are in many ways at service, at least on the music side, to offering what's possible or offering the opportunities to the record labels and if not directly to independent artists themselves who cross a certain threshold. So we're almost seeing a very opposite thing happen there from that perspective. Yeah. And I think they also know that um, on social media, it's individual users who have the power. It's influencer marketing. It's it's record labels going to ind individual influencers to partner with them. Whereas on Spotify, their leverage is the playlist ecosystem, you know, and, and them being the voice of curation. So I think there's also probably a hesitancy to give over some of that curatorial power to the, to the user. This is a good place for us to talk about an artist who's taken advantage of a lot in the height of the streaming era growth and streaming era monetization. And that's NBA Youngboy. What he's been able to do leading specifically into YouTube, but in a different way than we saw with uh, Soulja Boy and Justin Bieber. Soulja Boy kicked things off and influenced a generation. 
Justin Bieber followed a formula of covers and then taking that into this broader global superstar career. NBA Youngboy, though, however, he leaned into this platform, became native in this platform, and really became a YouTuber who is very successful at making music videos and understanding the algorithm. Everything from the way his videos look, the formulaic nature, the fact that there's a little bit of a hook, the DIY feel to it, he was able to leverage that to have tons of streams. He releases music on a very regular basis. He's prolific and he's continued to find success, find his people on a platform without necessarily relying on a lot of the main gatekeepers and things like that that have historically held artists behind. He's continued to find ways to make this work for him. And I know there's other artists that have followed in suit, but he's definitely one where people often look at the most streamed artists of the year, especially during the pandemic years, and always be like, what, this many people listen to NBA Youngboy? And it's like, yeah, he knows his audience and they're on YouTube and it's a large number of people that wanna follow his stuff, no different than people follow Mr. Beast or Jake Paul or people like that. Yeah, he's massively successful. There's accolades or milestones that he shares with Taylor Swift and Drake, but he's not necessarily that well known outside of the YouTube ecosystem. So uh, he's a really interesting example, I think, of that you can, in fact, build a career outside of the traditional DSP system. It's really, like we were kind of alluding to earlier, made use of sort of this content creator approach. He's releasing music constantly. Um, so he's able to actually fill his channel with videos. I think a lot of the the biggest YouTube creators, um, the way that they do it is by making videos that are um, have like crazy titles in all caps and are sort of like really catching your eye, drawing in attention. And I think NBA Youngboy does it as well. I think he kind of he kind of fits into um, that model of what makes a creator successful on YouTube that, as we were talking about earlier, it can be difficult for music artists to fill. And there's other artists, too, that have kind of done this. People like Lindsey Sterling, um, MXM Tune, Dave Days, who's more of a parody and cover artist. But still, like, there are artists out there that are building entire careers within the YouTube ecosystem that don't always um, transcend it. He speaks to the evolution of shock value and the boundaries that that has continued to expand to, especially in the social media. It's always existed in broadcast mainstream media, but social media took it to another level. So it's artists like him and it's not necessarily a coincidence that a lot of the things that he may be talking about or pushing or even some of the transgressions that he's had, he's able to do it on a platform like that where to be blunt, he because of some of the transgressions and issues, he's not exactly the person that's going to get invited to the Met Gala the same way that other rising artists that are his same age, even less streams than his, may still get some of those opportunities. And I think that's a very common thing that a lot of people on YouTube that have become successful, not all of them, but there often is a bit of an edge that they have where this base rallies for them even stronger on a platform like YouTube because the mainstream hates on them. Thinking too just about that in general, another thing that I know he and other YouTube artists have taken advantage of is YouTube's short form video shorts. And you and I talked a lot about this when we did our short form video wars episode, but this is a huge push for YouTube because the whole entire music industry is trying to figure out 
How do we compete with TikTok? Everything has been shifting to short form video in different ways. Several of the DSPs now have short form video style feeds and different things like that. And this was YouTube's answer to it. And one of their big pushes and something that Lior Cohen as the head of YouTube has reminded people of is that this is a platform where the short form video does lead directly to music that's there. This is something we could probably talk about now just given some of the recent news that's come from TikTok. But this was a big push that they had where people felt like just having the short form video that doesn't lead anywhere. I think Lior had said that this is one of the most dangerous things that could exist in the music industry. Short form video that doesn't lead anywhere is the most dangerous thing that I've seen in a long time, I think was the quote. Right, and I feel like this is another one of those debates on the monetization of the exact thing versus the promotional opportunity that exists because of where attention has went to. However, TikTok now has added the opportunity to be able to tap in and go directly to one of the DSPs if there's a song that you like, which in many ways answers part of that challenge. I haven't tried it myself, so I can't necessarily speak to how seamless it is compared to the YouTube shorts to YouTube music video customer journey, but that's something that has clearly been a top of mind thing for both platforms. They're both kind of vying for that ecosystem play of having all these different ways that you can engage with music and artists in the same suite of platforms. Um, and then, of course, TikTok music, if and when it launches more widely, will we'll only add to that. And sort of looking at the comparisons between the two, I wonder how much kind of knowing that the YouTube music streaming platform sort of came as an YouTube music's answer to the pressure it got from the music industry. I wonder how much TikTok music is similarly an answer to that pressure. I think it's something that ByteDance probably would have looked into anyway, but I, I wonder how much of it is partly to appease the music industry in this value gap eternal debate. <laughs> right, because there's another value gap that exists there. and We're starting to see the same things come up. I know that TikTok does have people that are inside that are seasoned and respected music industry executives. I do wonder, though, is there a version of TikTok that does try to get its Troy Carter, its Jimmy Iovine, its Lior Cohen to be the spokesperson that is out in front in a lot of ways to help close that gap there? Because the same way that in 2016, people were talking about how vinyl generated more revenue for the music industry than YouTube did. In 2023, people are talking now about how Peloton, a service that reaches a fraction of the people that YouTube does, generates more revenue as an emerging platform than TikTok does, at least according to Goldman Sachs' uh, 2023 Music in the Air report that came out earlier this year. And the other thing about shorts and this ecosystem that's interesting to me, kind of similar to what I was saying earlier about the balance between ad business and having the premium. How valuable is shorts user time compared to YouTube user time? And how successful does YouTube want shorts to be? You know, like if all of their audience that's on YouTube or more, more and more of it uh, spends more and more time on shorts, is that actually reducing their ad revenue or increasing it? How do they sort of balance um, the flow of audiences between those platforms to gain the most. Because there's a few factors there, right? What does the duration 
look like for someone that is looking at something on shorts? How does that impact someone that's been using it before? If someone's on shorts, are they more likely to go to a different platform? Does it keep it there longer? There's so many factors of this that it can be hard to truly equate where even if there was some comparison, there's likely some caveat that shows, well, you got to compare it this way because it isn't exactly the same from that perspective. And even dating back to the conversation you and I had about short form video wars, there's still a culture that TikTok is able to capture and tap into. And I do think that shorts has become much more prevalent in a lot of ways, but we haven't quite seen it from that perspective. Of course, with more transparent data and and things like that, we will be able to see certain things. But again, one of the things that the Goldman Sachs report did at least show was they estimated that shorts accounted for 8% of the emerging platform revenue that is generated by these platforms to the music industry. And TikToks was at 14%, I believe. Pelotons was the one that was at 17%. So it's half there. And that half, the 8% was above Instagram Reels, which I believe was 4 or 5%. So that gives at least some understanding. Of course, each of these has non-music values as well that they capture. But again, it would be interesting to see what that mix looks like. And on that note, before we close things out, we should probably talk about Article 17 and the influence and some of the ongoing conversations as well about where things are going in this broader debate around copyright and things like that, and just modernizing what that looks like for 2023. Yeah, definitely, because there is still pretty wide consensus that the law governing, you know, content on the internet written in 1998 isn't really set up for the way the internet works now. Um, And there have been a lot of moves to try and revise that law. Um, So Article 17, formerly known as Article 13, is probably one of the most prominent examples of that. And under this uh, in the EU, those content hosting platforms like YouTube actually could be brought to court for copyright infringing content. There was more that they had to do to prove that they had sought to obtain a license for the content. It basically just put more onus on the platform to make sure that it's it's not hosting too much content that's infringing. This could have had pretty big implications for YouTube. This was happening around 2018 to 2020. was kind of where there was the most activity going on around Article 17. It hasn't, to my knowledge, had that much of an impact yet, in part because some territories kind of dropped it or it sort of fizzled out around the time of Brexit. I think it's been adopted in some territories and not others. Um, but just kind of goes to show that there are still many conversations happening about how we should best revise this law. And it's likely that that does eventually happen and it would have pretty big implications on um, how YouTube does its business with the music industry. So so more to come. <laughs> and this just reminds me, this is one of these things that has been quite tough for the music industry, but more broadly, disruptive technology to navigate because you have these platforms that simultaneously disrupt and upend everything that's happening in this industry, but they also help and support the same industry as well, just with where things are going. I look at a company like Netflix and its relationship to the entertainment industry in Hollywood, and I think there's some aspects there. You look at restaurants and these food delivery services where sometimes, similarly, there is this begrudging like, oh, well, if we ignore them, then we'll lose out on this business. But we have to give ourselves a haircut every time that a deal is 
or, or an item is purchased or we have to deliver something. And even to some extent with Facebook and Google and the news organizations with some of the ways that information is shared and how they feel like a lot of their content becomes quite generic in a lot of ways where these platforms will mine the content itself and then share it. And I'm sure we'll have similar debates about what's happening with everything in AI, especially as GPT-4 and other technologies continue to enhance and it becomes something that is both relied on, but it's also disrupting. So YouTube in many ways follows this quite common pattern that we see a lot of these technologies have in their respective industries. Yeah, there's sort of this paradox where these new lines of business are at once the most valuable part of the ecosystem and the most threatening. <laughs> I think in some ways it brings me back to that question in the beginning, the Apple, YouTube, Spotify, which one most influential, they each have a case to make in this same exact way, whether it's Apple and a lot of the concerns that people had 20 years ago with the introduction of the iTunes store and the fact that now we're making it legal for all these songs to be unbundled and all of them are now 99 cents. Granted, Apple was following something that had already been happening for five plus years with peer-to-peer -peer file sharing, but that's what they had put out there, similar with Spotify and just giving users what they wanted for a price that they were willing to pay for it. And then with YouTube as well, so many aspects of it. And I think specifically that point you and I mentioned earlier about just how good the ad supported version of the platform is and in many ways how that can disincentivize someone to subscribe to the paid version of the platform because it is designed to generate ads for the billions and trillions of views that happen on the platform on a regular basis. Three companies that have had enormous impacts on culture and music and, you know, how we relate to music and all these things. Always a pleasure digging into these topics with you, Dan. It's been, it's been great. <laughs> Yeah, this was fun. This is a fun one. I know this is one we had circled up and I'm sure there's many others we could dig into. But before we close things out, anything else on YouTube? I feel like we've really covered the bases. Anything left to bring up? I think we covered it. Yeah. Oh, I guess for fun, I did have this here. I guess it didn't quite fit in the episode. But do you feel like you're pretty well versed on the most viewed music videos on YouTube? Let's go top 10. Which of the top 10 do you think you could guess? Yeah. I mean, Despacito's in there. That's number one. Probably um, Gangnam Style. That's number five. While you're thinking for context, so Despacito has 8.3 billion. It is by and large the one that has the highest and Gangnam Style has 4.9 billion in the fifth spot. Probably like single ladies. Yes or no? Is that in? Is no, that, that, no, that's no, not in here. I'm thinking yeah. about the videos that like the have a dance component, I feel like are sometimes the top ones. Okay, here's some of the other ones. Some of them are surprising, some of them not. So Ed Sheeran, Shape of You, number two with 6.1 billion. Um, that song's big on every platform. I think it's up there on Spotify as well. Like that and Blinding Lights is like the most like streamed Spotify song ever. Number three, Wiz Khalifa, See You Again, Charlie Puth. Um, that was a huge video just because it was like tied with like the Fast and Furious movie and after Paul Walker had passed away. Number four, uh, Mark Ronson, uh, Uptown Funk with Bruno Mars, of course. And then there's a few other interesting ones. So you got Crazy Frog in here, still doing strong at number seven. <laughs> yeah, that's a wild one. Uh, we got uh, Maroon 5, Sugar, uh, 3.9 billion. And uh, One Republic Counting Stars, 3.9 billion. And Katy Perry, Roar, 3.9 billion. So there's some strong ones in there. 
Any, anything in there that's really surprising? I mean, I think that Maroon 5 Sugar is a really fun and good music video. I'm surprised it has that many, I would say. I mean, you could have like replaced like another Maroon 5 music video, honestly, and I probably wouldn't have been surprised. I mean, I know that probably is their biggest song, but yeah. One Republic Counting Stars, I probably have to rewatch that music video again to see. And then Katy Perry Roar, I'm a bit surprised by that because I feel like like Dark Horse probably feels like her more popular music video. Oh, and that's number 14 on the list, so it's not too far behind, but yeah. I was gonna guess Katy Perry would have a song in the top 10, but I don't know if I would have guessed it would be Roar. Yeah, I agree. Maroon 5 and Run Republic are probably the ones that are the most surprising. Although I guess it's just the virtue of them being songs that were released a fair amount of years ago. So just like people using YouTube to listen to them, even if they're not watching the music video, probably contributed to that. They were massive hits. I know we could go down a rabbit hole on this list again. Thanks again for coming on. This is a really fun episode. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Send it to one or two people you think would really get value out of listening to this episode. And while you're at it, if you could rate and review the show, that would be great. Rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Rate the podcast on Spotify. Rate the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps make sure that the word gets out about Trapital and what we're building here. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.